Hi, everyone, and welcome to Presently Aki with Claudia. I, I am Claudia, your host. And Presently Aki is a beautiful platform with a community of healers where I have conversations about their journey of self-discovery, of self-love, and how they self-healed. Um, and today's special guest is Brian Shears. And so now I've stopped saying that because I used to explain myself as to why everyone's special, everyone's special. So now I'm just going to say today's special guest is so-and-so. So, um, I'm so excited for today's conversation. And Brian is an authorized enhanced stress resilience training, which is ESRT trainer providing UC San Francisco's propriety mindfulness program to UCLA's Geffen Medical School Surgery interns. In addition, Brian leads a silent three-day retreat for law enforcement in the Pacific Northwest and is a licensed marriage and family therapist specializing in using dialectal, dialectical behavioral therapy and tr to treat anxiety and personality disorders at the Westside DBT Treatment Center. Hmm, that word got me. <laughs> Welcome, Brian. It's a big word. It is. Thank you. Thank you, It's good to be here. Yes, yes. I'm so glad that we're getting to record. Um, and I'm really excited. It's a little special treat for all of you. For those that may be driving and listening to this, do not do the following meditation. <laughs> do it when you get home. Um, so Brian's going to lead us into a quick meditation so that way we can cleanse the space and start this beautiful conversation. Please. Wonderful. Okay, so <clears throat> I like to let people know, um, sometimes people ask me, you know, what is it that mindfulness meditation is really all about? And I say, well, you know, it's not always helpful to think about it as something to believe. It's really helpful to think about it as something to do. And so we'll try some doing together, see what kinds of experiences people might have with that. So maybe you're sitting or you're standing or you're listening to this in some position. And so my invitation to you is to find a position where you can be relatively still for the next minute or so. And your body could be at ease so that you're not straining. You can breathe easily, freely. And for some people, closing the eyes is really helpful. For others, it's not so helpful. So you can decide for yourself. If you want to keep your eyes open, pick a spot on the floor or on the wall or on a desk that's clear, free of words and pictures and items. So you can let your gaze just dissolve into space. But once you've chosen your eye position, take a moment to notice that there's a feeling that you have right now that you're here. How do you know you're here? So there's this sense of aliveness. Maybe you're noticing your body. Maybe you're noticing that you're hearing these words. Maybe your mind is making comments on this experience or it's wandering to some other topic. But either case, there's a distinct experience of being here now. And as we practice mindfulness meditation, 
we learn how to pay attention to different anchors like the breath or like sound or parts of the body, various sensations. We kind of break down our experience into these little components, which is really helpful. It builds attention, helps to get perspective and insight into our moment-to-moment -moment experience. But there's also this other process happening that's always there. And we could call that awareness. So this awareness is actually what you are because it's your body that appears in awareness. It's thoughts that appear in awareness. Your attention, where you direct it and whether it's focused or scattered, you would only know it's focused or scattered because of awareness. Awareness is the basis of consciousness and the consciousness is the basis of the self. So in a few moments, I'm going to stop talking and see if you can simply notice that you're aware and don't do anything. There's nothing to try nothing to control or make happen. And see if you can let everything just appear as it does moment to moment, not pushing anything away and not holding on to anything. See if you can be that awareness that allows things to arise and pass. Whatever your experience is right now, the only way you'd know is because you're already always aware. The awareness that you are is something you don't have to earn. You don't have to work for it. You can't damage it. You can't improve it. So as you practice meditation, whatever forms you are trying and working with, leave a little time at the end to recognize this fundamental unchanging state of awareness that is the core of your being. And as I invite you to open your eyes if they're closed and return to our conversation, you'll notice that you're only aware that you're doing that because of this ongoing presence that you are. So we can see if we can stay in some simple way connected to that as we speak and listen, exchange in this conversation. Amazing. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. I feel very grounded now. Wonderful. That was um that was wonderful. Your voice is quite soothing. I much appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, definitely. So 
we're gonna dive into the beginning aspects of how we how we well how we all became our butterfly stage right because that's what everyone sees now right where we are today and the and the achievements that we've had and the successes and um the career that we've uh put together and the families and on so i always like to start with the most deep question which is our caterpillar stage right where what are some of the challenges you face in your journey of self-discovery in the sense of were you always in self-awareness or was there a path or a journey for you to arrive there before you even knew that that was a thing mm. yeah it's uh it's a big question and you know it's funny on on a different day it might come out of my mouth a different way i'm always curious to see what i'll say the facts remain the same, but how I weave them together, you know, it's always so interesting. Um, I think from a very early age, I didn't have the words for it, but I, I knew that um, all of this seems very strange and interesting, this world of sights and sounds and sunsets and birds and objects and light and uh, the strange stillness that's there when you get still in your body. So I remember being a, a little boy and, and being very um, quiet. And I grew up in a house in the Hollywood Hills. Um, my dad was working most of the time and my mom was going to school and uh, for her master's in sociology and my brother was eight years older than me. So if I was eight years old, he was 16 off driving and we didn't really play together like siblings very, very much. And so I, in some ways I was like a child and uh, I had a lot of time by myself and in my household there was definitely a powerful influence from my mom of Eastern religion. She came from San Antonio, Texas, mm -hmm. but um, she was raised a Catholic and uh, she loved the liturgy. She loved the atmosphere of the church and some of the traditions, but she couldn't square with some of the ideas. And so when she came to Los Angeles to go to college, um, she really became fascinated by uh, a powerful movement here in LA that was really happening all over the world. But in particular in Los Angeles, there was this impact of some very big thinkers like the Zen teacher, Alan Watts and, um, the influence of the Beatles and Maharishi Yogi and um, lots of uh, transcendental meditation, lots of different things happening uh, in different groups. And as an actor, she was very much connected to people who were fascinated by um, Eastern consciousness and the emergence then in the 60s of psychedelic experiences. And consciousness was just a big, big topic. And so my house where I grew up, was filled with books from Aldous Huxley and Alan Watts and uh, John Kabat-Zinn mm. and all kinds of interesting people who were perusing this question of meaning, man's search for meaning, existential truth, mm. religion, mysticism. Mm. So I had a really rich upbringing. Um, that was a beautiful backdrop to deal with all the massive dysfunction in my family. So 
my mother and father, um, I, I still can't imagine now, even with, with all my life experience, I can't imagine how they met and dated, let alone got married. They were so different from each other. And by the time I remember much of anything, they had separate bedrooms and my dad would work pretty much all day into the late evening so that he had to spend less time with her. And so I would see him, he'd come home late at night around 9, 30, 10 o'clock and we'd spend an hour before I went to bed. And so it was very much a, a lonely kind of situation. You know, I, I was longing mm -hmm. for more family warmth and more family connection with them. And it was mostly uh, friction and uh, fighting with each other or turning away from each other or icing each other out. So it was very, very tough. And my brother was very antagonistic to my father, and uh, he was that was his stepfather, by the way. And uh, my brother also mm -hmm. fought a lot with my mom. So there's just a tremendous amount of turmoil in the family, as well as mm -hmm. a lot of uh, laughter um, by turns. You know, we'd have amazing nights, and then there'd be some huge family fight where I would be the peacemaker. I was the youngest, and I was sort of the golden child where both my parents worshipped me. Mm -hmm but in different ways, and my brother was always jealous of me, so I, I tried to keep the fights between my parents or between my brother and one of my parents to a minimum, and uh, that kind of put me in a role, you know, where um, it was very stressful, and there was a lot of expectation on me. Um, so I, I grew up kind of um, always looking over my shoulder a little bit, and looking for that silence, mm. those places where I could be quiet by myself. Mm. And um, also, you know, by the time I was 11, I was very close to my mom. And my father was a traveling salesman. On once, once every month, he would go away on a trip for four days. And uh, it just so happened that on this night, my mom, again, being a Catholic or an ex-Catholic, she had seen the movie The Exorcist. It had just come out. And so she was really <laughs> freaked out by it. And she asked me to sleep in her in her bedroom. She had like a couch that pulled out to a bed. So she asked me to sleep in her bedroom to kind of keep her company. And, of course, I was not afraid of a movie. So I said, sure. And so that night happened to be a night that um, there had been a predator stalking women in the neighborhood, unbeknownst to us. And so he, he had recognize that my dad would be out of town uh, you know in a pattern one weekend a month and so he broke into the house and yeah. he broke into my mom's bedroom and he sexually assaulted my mom and I was trapped in the room while it happened so that was a, a really powerful experience that um, mm. really shaped my destiny and shaped my mom's destiny and our relationship um, and at that time, you know, we, ironically, both my mother, my brother and myself were all very talented martial artists. You know, we've been studying mm. Japanese karate for a long time and, um, I started at age five. So I had a good six, six years or so under my belt. And I remember wanting to save my mom and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do anything about mm. it. So luckily mm. she was unharmed. We were both unharmed and, after we called the police and did all the things we're supposed to do, one of the things that, that happened was that um, 
I became my mom's protector. My, my brother mm. is at that age, so he's 19. So he was off doing his thing. My parents divorced shortly after that. It just broke the marriage up, whatever's left of it. And so I was really there to, to nice. take care of my mom, you know, all throughout junior high school and high school. So I, I, when I look back at it now, I kind of think of it as I, I was always um, a peacemaker. I was always a, an interpreter. I was always um, a caretaker. And mm. then I got really hyperactivated when that happened. And so right. that really started a whole journey of being, uh, in psychological terms, we call it enmeshed or uh, codependent with my mom. Yes. yes. Um, but the beautiful thing that came out of it was that she really, um, her spiritual practices and her depth of her search for the mystical truth of life became more and more available and it really shaped my own sense of mystery, my own sense of why do these things happen? How do we heal from them? What do we do? You know? So as much as I would never want that to happen to anybody else, and I, if I could go back in time and say, you know, erase it and make it never happen because of how much it, it damaged my mom, um, I would go back and change the time. But I see the silver linings. You know, I see the silver linings now, and uh, it really helps shape who I am today. So, those were some really powerful things. And I think other other things I had to overcome included, you know, being ashamed of my family because they were so um, weird and uh, lo lovable in some ways, but also they just, you know, they just didn't get along. So it was I didn't want my friends to come over, and right. Uh, so I developed a lot of social anxiety too, a lot of fronting, sure. a lot of pretending. So I had to go overcome all these things to find myself, and it took a long time. Yeah, no. yeah, I can only imagine. And deep gratitude for sharing such a vulnerable story. Sure. Um, can only imagine. Um, really, thank you. Of course. Um, yeah. And and at that time, you know, I'm from New York City, so it's a different upbringing. But I know once I moved here to Los Angeles, you know, re reading on the history, and there's always some guy stalking women here in los angeles mm. um in the 70s in the 80s and it was so when you said this i'm like yeah i, I know this it was prevalent for a moment mm -hmm. and to have you know meet someone that you know that was impacted by that i'm i'm not surprised because it was yeah. a, a, a thing right and so um and also what comes to mind, I don't know, this is um, what came to mind. I don't know if you're into DC Comics at all. Uh, you know, the Flash, the Flash's story, because he can run fast and he figured how to run back in time and save his mother. Um, and they call the movie The Flashpoint Paradox. Um, and so they show what does happen when he does go back and change the past and to live that new future. Um, only to realize, obviously, that it has to occur in order for him to become who he is. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what uh, yeah. reminded me of your story. Mm -hmm. um, very powerful because it is a part of your story now. And if that didn't happen, then you would turn out differently mm -hmm. today than 
And who knows if you'd be doing half of the things that you've done, which I am excited to dive into, right? Um, yeah, I, it, so mind-blowing. It's it's so, life is so interesting in that way, right? When, you, when these traumatic situations happen to us and how we write the first wishes for it to never have happened. Right. And as time passes and we grow and, and expand and if we allow for these things to change us and grow from it, then we become, you know, that's kind of our catalyst to becoming who we are and kind of our, our highest self, more or less. Right. Um, so sometimes they have to happen in order for the trajectory of where you're somewhat destiny because we also have a hand in it for it to happen and occur otherwise it'd be different and that's always it, it blows my mind when life just does things like that and to hear and this is why i do these podcasts because i feel like um it's funny one of my wishes came true which was i wish for everyone to be able to write their own autobiography because everyone's life is so different and amazing and and it has its ups and downs and the, if we all knew each other's story we would be just in in compassionate state right of in awe of how we overcame um but now i get to do it in this format mm-hmm. and ask everyone who comes on here and and talk talk about because you know especially during the pandemic what i realized is that we're no no one's okay mentally in the mental health space no one's okay and why are we pretending like we are right so that first question is so important so that way my hope is that the listener can see that all these things that happen to us in our caterpillar stage are just as as important as to either becoming the butterfly or with the butterfly that you already are, right? Or in your cocoon stage to becoming that space. And it's okay that, you know, we all become a butterfly in a different space, a different time. It's not always together, right? It's um, so, and to understand that these, these things in life are important and they and they build character and integrity in you and and you you know we all hope for these things not to happen like you say you don't wish it on anyone but it, it happens and it's really the catalyst as i said for you to decide to use it to be something and and, and grow from that and the example of the healer is healing from that aspect so you 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 can embody this space and other other people can be inspired by it and so this is this is what what goes on in this in this podcast space brian (laughs) you know it's 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 truly remarkable for me um one of the gifts that i have uh i didn't know until i became vulnerable Right. I can't ask for someone to be vulnerable until I am myself. When I started becoming vulnerable and people were vulnerable with me, I realized one of my gifts is when people open up into that deep of vulnerability uh, in any traumatic space, I see how beautiful the person is. Like their their beauty lies in that vulnerability. And I fall in love. And I'm just in awe. 
about it. And that's what drives me to do this. And so, and when, when the guest comes on and shares such a deep space, I am filled with such gratitude because it isn't easy sometimes to display this space. And, and, and I offer always a safe space with my energetic resonance on purpose because that is what is needed to have these conversations that are needed to be heard, um, in my opinion, of course. So thank you again. Sure. Yeah. That was amazing. So um, from all of that beautiful space, what would you say at some point in your life uh, as a teenager, young adult, uh, was that pivotal moment when you decided to go into psychology and into the mindfulness space? Well, I, I was um, very lucky that my mom studied meditation with some very profound teachers. Uh, I didn't know they were meditation teachers. I had no idea. I just knew that they were, whenever I was around them, they felt like, um, first of all, they were really warm and generous. And generous in terms of especially, they made me feel like I was the only person in the room when I was there. Like they would really notice me and ask me questions and really listen. And that just felt like different than any other adult, including my parents quite often. Um, yes. and then by the time I was about maybe, I don't know, seven or eight, um, where my mom would go and practice meditation, they had a kind of a kid's group where they could, you know, kind of babysit the kids while the parents would meditate and do like a half day retreat kind of thing. So, um, that's where I would go like once or twice or three times a month. And there was a guy named David Langmuir who was a physicist, PhD, and really um, lovely guy. He had kind of a, uh, an elderly Jimmy Stewart kind of vibe to him. And mm -hmm. he really was a gentleman, like in a true old world sense. And he would teach us um, about uh, science. We'd read Shakespeare and, and take a role in the play and read it together and then go see it out in a theater. We would go um, on nature hikes. We would work in the garden. We would do different kinds of rhythmic exercises with the body. We did all kinds of really just a rich education. And I had no idea it was connected to meditation. I had no clue. But I really loved it. Um, I really felt like I was in an energy atmosphere of, of um, true learning and true curiosity and true richness where the adults were really interested in who we were. So that was a huge sort of foundation. And then as I got older... Uh, into high school, I started recognizing that, oh, these people are meditation teachers. That's what the secret sauce is, you know. And so every now and then I'd be invited to some event, some family event, or some celebration, and I would see these lovely people. And um, I realized my mom was actually meditating. That's what she was doing. And so I got very interested in it. So I started reading different books and um, got very curious about it. So, again, it makes perfect sense given both my relationship to my mom, our trauma bond, and also mm -hmm. the household filled Florida ceiling with books like this. So really fertile soil. And then right around uh, when I was 25, I, I met the girl. I didn't know it yet, but I met the girl I was going to marry. And we were on the phone one night. And uh, it's funny, we, we had these two books in common that we had at our bedside. One of those was Richard Bach's Illusions, and the other one was 
Kelly Gibran's The Prophet. And I thought, mm. oh my gosh, how is it this girl has the same books that I have? It's crazy. <laughs> and so we were talking about meditation, talking about the search for meaning. And I said, my mom belongs to this meditation school. And I keep on thinking I, I got to find time to, to, to start myself, you know. And she's like, well, what are you waiting for? You know, and I'm like, I guess nothing. And so mm -hmm. she kind of lit my fire, which actually is funny because that's the the characteristic of our relationship. She is a, a manifester and I am a slow thinker and planner and weighing out the pros and cons and slow fuse to burn. So between the two of us now, we've been together almost 30 years. Um, we balance mm -hmm. each other out. Um, so I, I talked to David Langmuir, my old uh, teacher from the children's group. And we had lunch one day, which we used to have lunch every year. And just stay in touch. So I told him I was interested in starting a meditation group. And he said, well, how much more do you have for school? I was finishing up my undergrad still. And he said, you know, you have one more semester, finish it up because it's a commitment and then come back and talk to me. So that's what I did. And he set me up with a couple of people to talk to who were meditation teachers of this particular group. Um, and then I had my first uh, session. I went in and it was about 15 people and uh, kind of hidden here in North Hollywood. And what happened was I didn't have the language to understand what it was I was experiencing until that night. Mm. And they were able to speak about consciousness, speak about a more sort of objective way of understanding the mind and the body that just blew my mind. Like it blew me away. Like this, I mean, this is where I need to be. And there was so much um, wisdom in the room, but also it was quiet. It wasn't, it wasn't like a commercial group. In fact, this, this particular set of teachers, they don't even take donations. Um, there's no money involved. Um, so I had a really like, you know, unfortunately when you have to keep the doors open, there's a certain kind of way of presenting mindfulness practices that um, you want to try and make it a as accessible to everybody as possible because you want to be welcoming, but B you also got to keep the doors open, right? Here there was yeah. just this level of sincerity that, that wasn't burdened by money at all. So it was different atmosphere altogether. And I remember going back to the apartment I shared with my girlfriend and it was kind of late. It was like around nine thirty PM and we sat down in the kitchen and she's like, you look like you're on drugs. And I said, I feel like I am. I feel like I'm wide awake right now and in a totally different way. And um, yeah, that was the beginning. It never stopped. It was in 1993. Oh. Wow. Wow. That is phenomenal yeah. to have the fertile soil. And, and to have these people around you. And then I love how little by little, like, oh, they're meditation teachers. That's why they're mm -hmm. so present with me, right? Mm -hmm. And that's magical because that's what I do with the kids, right? They they feel that immediately, but just like Haikyuu did. They're like, why is this woman just so present and safe, right? And so even at parties, I'll talk to the kids and I'll ignore the adults. Um, because I feel they need to be seen. Um, but for for you to have that space, that's truly magical. And um, 
I wanted to ask you, what is your favorite type of meditation or do you switch it every day or what is it that you do you have um an intent before you start like how is it for you what is your meditation practice like mm -hmm. well gosh um so my undergraduate degree is in kinesiology and exercise science and for years i ran a personal training gym at the Duluth lake tennis club and sports mm -hmm. center so my mind is oriented towards uh, understanding mechanisms and understanding causes and effects and recognizing that specific tools cause specific effects right and so mm -hmm. i've always brought that kind of mindset to meditation practices that come from the secular mindfulness world as well as the buddhist tradition and and it's interesting there's a, a, a neuroscience researcher named tanya singer at the max planck institute in bonn germany who's doing this research now to show that every meditation has a kind of fingerprint specificity mm -hmm. so that's important to to share with our listeners because each practice mm -hmm. has uh, the possibility of creating certain kinds of traits um, and certain kinds of states so i think now there isn't any kind of meditation i don't love and I am mm -hmm. currently, I've also always been a student. So I, I'm, so since 1993, I've always been under the um, direction of one or more teachers because it's such a vast, vast world of, of mm -hmm. insight and wisdom that uh, I just find that, that I do best when I'm, I'm a student. And so, um, so right now, I would say that I always um, I have several practices that I'm committed to. So the things I'm committed to right now include uh, a lot of work from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. So um, I've taken a bodhisattva vow. So what that means is that I'm I'm I dedicate all my practice to the welfare welfare and the realization of all sentient beings everywhere kind of a mm -hmm. big aspiration um it's mm -hmm. it's it's impossible on it uh, intentionally um but it's the idea that uh, the, the ocean of the heart and mind is is um, infinite and so uh, i'm working with a wonderful book called reflections on silver river by ken mcleod and in there are um, verses of bodhisattva wisdom so uh, i work with those um weekly and once a month I sit with a teacher in particular with those teachings um, and we do I'll do a chapter a month or so um, sometimes with some of them that are more interesting I'll go for six months in one chapter and they're about really recognizing the the deep interconnection that we have with life that we are a part of life uh, that consciousness is connecting us to all people and all living things so it's different ways of recognizing that. And, and when you recognize that, then your compassion becomes as big as an ocean or as big as the sky. Um, and it's, yes. it's the way you relate to people and relate to life experience. So I'm working with that. And then also in the Tibetan tradition, you know, there's so secular mindfulness, what you might find in like MBSR or at the program we teach at mm -hmm. UCLA. Um, it's considered like dualistic mindfulness where you're developing this 
this feature of the human mind which is unusual compared to animals, right? We have a sort of split consciousness where if my dog is barking at the mailman, my dog is aggression. That is what she is. She's defending the house. And her whole body and her behavior and her consciousness are all directed towards that. She is defensive. She is aggression. Whereas if it were me, if I were barking at the mailman, one part of my mind would be going, why am I being such a jerk? You know, why am I, this, this guy looks scared. Why am I doing this? And you're kind of like, you have this part that's evoking this aggression and another part that's commenting on it, right? So that split nature of the mind right. is taken by dualistic mindfulness and we develop it further where we create the, the observer and objects. So mm -hmm. if I ask someone to get quiet and observe the breath, and follow the in-breath at the nostrils or the mouth or the chest or the belly, it creates a natural split and emphasizes that split, right? I, the observer, yes. am different from the in-breath, the out-breath, and those sensations, and then the distractions that pull me away from that, and then I bring it back. Well, who's the I who brings it back? Well, the experience is that I'm a little bit different than my thoughts, a little different than my breath. They're part of me, but they're not all of me. Yes. And in the Tibetan tradition, Specifically, although you can find it in all Buddhist traditions, but specifically in the Tibetan tradition, there is a recognition that there actually is no observer. That's mm -hmm. just an artifact of, of the mind supported by the brain, and that the next level of realization is that there is no separation between you and, and everything that you experience. Mm -hmm. And so that's called a non-dual practice. And there are many different yeah. kinds of non-dual practices outside of the Buddhist tradition, like an Advaita Vedanta and, and others. So I'm practicing non-dual mindfulness, which is continuous mindfulness without an object. And we kind of had a little taste of that, this, this opening of the practice. Yes. And then I always mm -hmm. do a lot of work with the body scan because the body is sort of the, the messenger of the environment and of the past. And so... Mm -hmm learning to read the messages of the body uh, is really important and learning how to come up with your own language for what that is because people will try and tell you what that mm -hmm. is but really only you can know and you can use their maps as a general kind of guideline but ultimately you have to be right. intimate with your body to know what its messaging is. So body scans of all kinds and moving meditation practices. I also do a lot of concentration practice and this is something that in my opinion, and it's not just mine, it's really a borrowed opinion from other teachers. There's a guy named Alan Wallace who has the um, Santa Barbara Institute for Consciousness Studies. He's a very close companion of the Dalai Lama, who's a translator and researcher and practitioner, teacher, scholar. And um, he makes the point that in traditional MBSR classes or typical mindfulness classes, concentration practice really isn't emphasized because it's difficult but that if we put the effort into it, it's like you know, if our minds are like a microscope, it's like taking a, a sort of average piece of glass and replacing it with a Zeiss high definition, high fidelity lens that doesn't have any distortion, mm. is pure and clear. Mm. So concentration allows us to remain in non-reactivity. For instance, if I'm trying to work with emotion, 
it's very easy to get reactive and identified with my analysis of the emotion or my evasion of the emotion or my right. attachment to the emotion. Right. And without concentration, it might be mm -hmm. hard to see that. So I, I do a lot of concentration yeah. practice to, to support the stability of, um, of perception without getting identified with how my mind wants to proliferate with talking about it in the moment. Right. Very important. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Wow. That's... So that's kind of a, a range of what I'm doing right now. I love that. I mean, you're doing a little bit of both dualistic and non-dualistic. Mm -hmm. um, I, th I mean, it's, it's beautiful because they're all practices. And uh, I think you mentioned like there's, um, you, we're not here to say this is the right way and this is the wrong way. And it's just all different variations of playing with meditation and even standing and, and laying down, walking, moving the body, right? Using the breath, having it, it's on, uh, uh, slight tricks of the mind, you know, kind of utilizing the tool itself to see what is it that, you know, especially with the masters that have come before us, um, using it into practice into what they've already mastered, per se, right? And for you yourself to perceive it and use it and have your own experience in that is magical in itself, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, a master of, of apples can tell you all the types of apples and you know, the sweetness and the bitterness, but you won't know until you try them yourself, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the seasons and all that. So um, I love I love that. I love that. Um, what are your thoughts on me guided meditations, either with binaural beats or um, uh, a person as you're listening? You know how there's so many apps now, mm -hmm. say mm -hmm. for the beginner, or you know even um solfeggio frequencies um there's also that those variations of meditation what are your thoughts on those yeah gosh it's a big question so um i don't know the research on binaural beats i know um uh, i was trying to think of the name of the institute where that really got started uh it's not coming to me in a second um but but, uh, you know, I, I would say, first of all, getting clear on what you're looking for, what you're wishing to develop mm -hmm. in yourself is really helpful, right? Mm -hmm. Because any meditation right. you do could be very relaxing, very calming, help you sleep, um, and it might not be at all what the meditation is intended for, right? So right, right. You, could, you, could, you could do anything if you say to me that, hey, I just, I do this, this, particular meditation on this app and it just relaxes me and makes me feel sleepy and I go to sleep to it. I'm like, great, fantastic. If that's what you want it right. for, fantastic, mm -hmm. beautiful. Um, but each meditation, as the research is starting to come in more and more, is very precise and very specific. And the language mm -hmm. really does matter. The the level of understanding of the, the guide it really does make a big difference. We're yes. finding in the research. Um, so as far as like... Uh, outside the realm of mindfulness so like binaural beats and other kinds of meditations i don't have a lot of experience and so i'm, I'm ignorant on that mm -hmm. i can't comment but i say if you if it works for you great yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, as far as apps go and guided meditations i think for a lot of people the experience of the mind unbridled with only 
something as mundane as the breath to anchor or body mm. sensations even harder, it's really tough to do the practice mm-hmm. without feeling frustrated, without feeling like you're doing it wrong, without it being really just chaotic and unpleasant or you fall asleep too easily. So having a guide can be really helpful because every time the person mm-hmm. speaks, at least, you realize, oh, wait, I'm supposed to be, med- supposed to be meditating. Right, right, um, right. We've all been there. <laughs> yeah. So I would say that um, there are some apps that I, whose, whose teachers I either know directly or indirectly that I feel are really uh, excellent. Um, and there, there are two caveats that I would put out there, though. One mm-hmm. is... Well, three. One is because there's so many choices, it's easy to be sort of like someone in a candy store getting a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Right. And and you can go very broad and try 10 different meditations, but never go deep into any one of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my suggestion is find something that really uh, is purported to deliver the the kinds of traits and, and states you're looking to cultivate in yourself. So if you're trying right. to get you know, more concentration or more body awareness or more loving kindness, find a practice and a, and a teacher, practitioner, and then stick with it for a while and, and mm-hmm. avoid the temptation to just, if it gets hard or if it gets quote unquote boring, stick with mm-hmm. hardness, stick with boringness and explore that rather than just jump to something else. And obviously if there's just a mismatch, mm-hmm. you realize, I thought I liked this teacher. Now I don't. That's fine. Of course, move on. But in terms mm-hmm. of like this, mm-hmm. this thing we all come to, which is, um, I get restless. I want to be stimulated. I want to be, I want to be interested. Right. And we have right. to find it for mm-hmm. ourselves. We have to find it for ourselves. We can't rely on the next exciting voice or meditation. That will create a dependency right. mm-hmm. for being entertained, and that's not what this practice is for. Mm-hmm. So that's the first caveat. Correct. The second caveat is that at some point, we all need to take responsibility for our practice, which means that I need to say, okay, what do I know about my experience relative to paying attention, being concentrated, having insights, having a mind-body awareness, knowing what thoughts are, knowing what my self-story is, knowing what my emotions are, all that stuff I'm trying to understand. And so I have to understand how these meditations are intentioned, what their mechanics are, so that I can say, yep, you know what, I'm going to do a practice right now that's based on working through anger, and I know how to do it, and I know what to do, and I'm going to give myself a timer, and I'm going to hold it myself without a recording mm-hmm. dictating the pace, Yes. and also not yes. responding to what's actually alive in me in this moment, because it's a pre-recorded experience. Mm-hmm. So... At some point, I look at recorded practices as training wheels that we need to let go of. And yes. I, I still have apps that I use just because um, sometimes I want to check out what Alan Wallace is doing or what Sam Harris is doing or what Dan Harris is doing. And so I'll jump in and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll just take the, the, the effort off and relax and let them guide me and just be fully devoted to their language. But for the most part, I own it myself because then you start creating your own exercises. You start really becoming right. bespoke about right. it, right? And you become very precise. And that's what this practice really requires is some precision. And the third caveat is yes. that um, there's a researcher named Willie B. Britton over at Brown University, and she studies the, the ill effects of meditation 
and how it can be um, really contraindicated for some people. And in hmm. fact, uh, especially for people who go on silent retreats without having enough experience or without being properly screened. True, and she actually, she actually has a, an online group for people who have had increased anxiety, nightmares, mm, psychotic episodes, mm, more mm -hmm, depression mm -hmm. as a result mm. of practicing meditation. Right. And so what she's found mm. in her research is that using a meditation app is an independent variable for having an anxiety episode. So mm. all things being equal, if you check the box, yes or no, you use, an, you use a meditation app, it increases the likelihood that you'll be someone who's going to have an anxiety episode. So now there's no cause and effect relationship. That's correlation. So we don't know, mm -hmm. is that because people with anxiety are self-selecting to seek out meditation apps? Mm. Um, is that because the meditation app causes the anxiety? The hypothesis mm. right now is that because if you have anxiety or you're prone to anxiety and you're sitting quietly and you're no longer distracting yourself from the things that make you anxious, the anxiety thoughts mm -hmm. bubble up. And if you don't have a teacher there live to say, hey, this is what's going on for me right now. How should I work with this? And they can guide you in, in a live session or in a group session. You're kind of right. left on your own and, and it might be really um, destabilizing. Right. So I would say mm -hmm. if you tend to have anxiety and depression, find a live teacher, either in a group or in a one on one setting, because apps yeah. could be always not so helpful for you. Wow, that is fantastic. I can absolutely. Agree. Yes, yes, because especially not having the experience of meditation and just going to a silent retreat, I can definitely see a psychotic break, right? Because you've never been in that space before, even for one day or half a day or one hour, right? To just jump in into the, you know, into the Arctic Lake and not warm up to that space and just yeah. be like, hey, yeah. I, I can handle it. No, yeah. you, your body's gonna go into shock. So the mind will do so the same. Um, really glad you brought that up because I talk about it in terms of because people do have such a stigma and they steer away from it or they don't have they 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 want the stimulation or they're bored or they're sleepy and all these because there is so much now of the meditation apps and and, and I feel like the pressure of meditating um, which you don't have to do any of it but I like to simplify it by saying meditation is a relationship with yourself. And that's why you're closing your eyes to go within you and see what goes on. Explore that. Like, is your mind just like, are there a lot of thoughts? Great. Okay. You know, that's creating that awareness that you haven't paid attention to of what's going on. Or, right, talking, I know we're going to get into the emotions. You know, when you get mad, where in your body do you feel that emotion? You know, it's these simple things um, to help you start a relationship with your mind, with your body, and with yourself. And how does this all function, right? Slowly. And then I would suggest, you know, getting into a deeper space of meditation when you feel ready. Either, you know, I, I love the idea of the live for the anxious, depressed person. I definitely think that is more suitable than than the apps, especially if you have an intuitive teacher 
who can kind of sense how to guide that space. And it's really needed um, because the relationship with self is truly important more than anything, in my opinion, to have in this world is to have this relationship with yourself because that is the first relationship we have before we have relationship with others, right? And we aren't taught that as children, um, young adults, teenagers, right? As only some of us as we get older, if we get into this space even, right? Um, so I try to allow the person to understand that it's that relationship with you that's really what's occurring versus like, can you stop your thoughts? Can you completely stay focused and constant? Can you really be present 100%? Be the complete observer like that's that's also a growth it's a journey of that and, and this also is that where you want to go right you don't have to become the monk that's not where we're all heading here right it is what you decide with the relationship with you and one of the things i do love about mindful meditation um even you you said it in the beginning is having the option of either lowering your gaze or closing your eyes, right? Because you, some people aren't comfortable with closing their eyes and that's okay too, right? So it's just giving the choice of where are you comfortable in doing this meditation, right? Doing the light is, that's why it's important. So um, that's why I'm such an advocate because it's that self relationship and everything else that you and I have just talked about and everything that you, you shared in your practice is that intent that you've applied for yourself where you wanted to take it to and now you offer silent retreats right so that's it's just that everybody's relationship with self doesn't have to go into that's why I say the monk right that's like the 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 utmost that Buddhist monk right to become the Buddha itself we don't have to reach that that's not a must it's just the idea is to be with you. Um, so thank you for sharing that. I really love that um, that study at Brown University. It's very, very important. I'm really, really glad you brought that up for the listeners so that way they have a better understanding. Because I feel, I don't know if you sense this from your students, the stigma of meditation that also might bring the that anxiety that isn't there until if they feel pressure to okay, I have to meditate because they said, and I heard, and, you know, these apps. And so um, thank you for bringing that up. And I think, I think you know, the, the point you're making is really important one. And, and I think, you know, the relationship to the self is a, is, is a really fraught challenge because, you know, the, 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 the Buddhist contention is that we don't perceive the self accurately at all. And in the Western mm -hmm. point of view, we see that there is a real disconnect between our authentic self and what we had to um, kind of adapt, push underground, repress, distort in order to stay connected to our caregivers, right? So this is a really important mm -hmm. point that all of us to some degree have to wrestle with, which is that there are these two fundamental survival drives and one mm -hmm. is is much bigger than the other but both are mm -hmm. vital the first one is the, the the drive to belong and it's biological and mm -hmm. because we're born as the most vulnerable 
of mammals on the planet. We're, we're extremely unable to do anything for ourselves for a long time. Right. And so we require adults to feed us, clothe us, change our diapers, rock us to sleep, tend to us when we're distressed, and give us loving attention, right? And so as we get older, what happens is um, there begins to be some awareness around the sense that mom and I are different, and we're she's over there, I'm over here. But everything that's my brain and body are doing is to keep that motherly love and care on me because without it it's existential disaster i can't do anything for myself i don't understand what the world is so the adults around me need to not only take care of my basic needs but also they need to to, to notice my shifts in state and correspond to that so that if i'm feeling mm. uh, some kind of dis, dis ease or or feeling unsettled i can be settled if I'm having an experience of frustration, I can be soothed. But if 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 I'm just more of another problem in this very chaotic space that my parents are dealing with, then they, they quickly just want to put the problem out. And the problem is mm -hmm. that when they do that, my internal world isn't reflected back to me as a toddler, for instance. So I I get these messages that are often, sometimes they're verbal, Sometimes they're not verbal, but that my fuss-making, the way I make mm. the room a little less quiet, is a problem. And so I, I, I get it shut mm. down. And so mm -hmm. I do whatever it takes to keep that love coming my way. So I'll try and be a good boy. I'll try and put away mm. my toys. And when I have a fit, mm. you know, I feel ashamed that I'm getting mom or dad's wrath on me. But, but yes. the point is that attachment drive is a survival drive there is no survival without attachment so yeah. the second survival piece is authenticity which is really as especially as i get a little older authenticity is oh i know what i feel in my body i know what's happening in my mind and this is my natural expression of what's true right now but if my authenticity is disapproved of by my parents and it threatens my attachment bond I'm going to choose just involuntarily the attachment bond and push down my right. authenticity. And what happens if my mm -hmm. authenticity is continually pushed down, I don't really know who I am. Yeah. I really, I have ideas, I have language, I have anecdotes yeah. and little moments, but I don't really know who I am. And so I grow up really confused in a lot of situations. Maybe it shows up with, you know, pursuing career, but feeling empty and not satisfied. Maybe it feels okay. like I'm always these, these relationships that are unhealthy and I don't know why. It's because I don't really know myself. And so sitting in silence is a chance to let these parts that have been suppressed bubble up to be known. Yes. Right. So that, that self-knowledge is the main understanding of the practice yes. of mindfulness. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Yes. And, and, you know, that that is, again, I, I do my best with my wording. Um, it is a vital space for you to get to know yourself um, because the world will tell you who you are if you don't easily, right? Especially for the attachment, right? We're people pleasing and, and not putting ourselves first. And um, 
sometimes here on this side of the world, that is what is mostly done, what everyone is used to, right? We all put on a mask and go out and not be our authentic selves, no matter what that may be, because we've had different upbringings, mostly traumatic, where that isn't accepted and you want to belong, right? As part of a tribe, a collective, that's the natural instinct to belong, right? That's why people love sports and these type of activities where you are a part of something, um, even though you might not even care for the sport, right? But just to feel that space, that nurturing aspect, right? To feel important in some way. <clears throat> and we can get lost. And the more time passes, the difficult it is. Um, but I feel that a new day is always a new opportunity for you to start no matter how old you are. Um, so I, uh, I would definitely suggest starting somewhere in the path of loving yourself, really, in a deeper expression that you've never tried before. Having that courage to start because, you know, we're always trying to externalize that love that we were lacking, right? That, that, that word of lack, we're not lacking, right? Because we are here. We are the gift itself um, and the world and, and the nature and, and, you know, sky, the sun, the planets, like it's all encompassing in, in this deeper aspect of divine love. Um, so that's sort of where my energy went, uh, spun off what you just said. Um, yeah, that was that was beautiful. Yes, and um, that's always what my I would say if I'm an advocate is is this space exactly what we're saying right now is just coming home to yourself somehow. And if someone in this in this podcast resonate with you, is just reach out, ask a question. You know, it's never there's nothing silly to ask because we are all beginners at some point, right? Even Muhammad Ali was a beginner at some point. You know, he wasn't born with gloves in his hands. <laughs> so um, it's okay. And um, I think that's also important that it's okay that we don't know what we didn't know and now we kind of do and we get to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so... I wanted to continue on to this beautiful conversation regarding some of the work that you're doing now and that you brought to my attention, which blew my mind because um, I, 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 I know I talked to you on the phone about it, right? The theory of emotion um, and just sitting with it because that's... Um, you know, I didn't go to school for mindfulness. Also, I was just naturally in that space when you're from New York City in such a hard, sometimes that hyper-awareness is part of being in a place like that, right? And it just, I also worked in hospitality for 20 years and managing people's expectations became also part of being mindful, right? And all of that, all these little aspects played into my life and coming into this space and meeting all of you, including Manage and Eric, um, I found that place, right, where I 
belong, where I feel that I am understood being that awkward child and not having the wording or the place to feel like what is what's going on within me that not everyone else is seeing or feeling what I am. Um, so it, it's been such a gift, um, really moving here and not knowing that there was a mindfulness research center. I was like, what? Oh my God, that's amazing. You know, and like it is a thing, you know, reading all these books as well as you have um, and just having the sheer curiosity of, of yourself and, you know, these masters and where they come from and what is all these thoughts. And so, you know, your background is very extensive in so many ways. And I really wanted to dive in a little deeper. I know because Eric was also kind of bragging about it. <laughs> and um, he is just such a kind soul. So I um, wanted to explore some of these aspects of your study, um, not only with the theory of emotion, but also um, how you are in, you know, providing these silent retreats for law enforcement. How did that even come forward for you? Yeah, well, uh, so I, I got certified to teach secular mindfulness at UCLA, the Mindful Awareness Research Center in 2011. And then in mm. 2012, I started teaching their curricula. And then in 2000 and I think um, 15, uh, I became a mentor in the program. So the, the teacher training program is like a 10 month program. And so uh, I became a mentor in that program. And mm -hmm. one of my mentees was a lieutenant police officer from Portland, Oregon named Richard Gerling. And um, we really hit it off. He's a, a real true social justice warrior in the sense that he's trying to transform policing. He was the first person to bring mindfulness based stress reduction to the Portland, Oregon Police Department. Mm -hmm. And um, he's fought a lot of ridicule, a lot of naysayers, a lot of really vicious, okay. vitriolic uh, criticism, and has really done it oftentimes alone. And so he wanted to do something that was immersive because he saw that an eight-week MBSR program is almost impossible for a police officer to attend in full because of their shift work, their paperwork, yeah. and all the sure. erratic aspects of their their schedules. So he said, will you, will you lead a retreat with me? Cause I've never done a retreat and I think we need to take cops over a weekend and dunk their heads under water. And so I said, sure, sure. Happy to do that. So we started leading retreats in Bend, Oregon for cops and uh, it really was trailblazing. Um, we did that in 2015 and 2016 and we've done it every year since. And, um, it's basically, a, a, for the most part, a functionally silent retreat. We allow them to speak to each other in small groups after meditation practices so that they can process their experience. And cops, when they're doing any kind of training, they love networking. They love talking and shooting the S and talking biz. And mm -hmm. here we're not letting them do that. They're having silent meals and silent walks. So we, we let them talk just a little bit after each meditation practice in small groups of three. Um, but yeah, it's been transformative. Uh, not everyone loves it, um, but many people have been radically transformed by it and have taken on the role of becoming uh, a mindfulness coach for their precinct and their agency. And so it's a slow process. We figure, you know, he and I joke that our grandchildren will be the ones to finally see the change in policing. 
but you know the uh, the long arc of justice is bending towards law enforcement and the tragedy of law enforcement which is that um, what we're really talking about is um, a, a sort of sub society with many different subcultures that is derivative from warrior culture so it's mm -hmm. paramilitary and it's it's its inheritance includes the denial of fear and the denial of trauma and the necessary sort of one the seemingly necessary um, sheep wolf and sheepdog approach to mm. protecting and it's right. it doesn't work anymore and hasn't worked for a long time and right. that's not it's not every cop right. there are lots of wonderful police officers but the culture right is toxic and it needs reform mm -hmm. and, and the first place to look as it was always be the case right is put the oxygen mask on yourself first right well it's mm -hmm. to recognize that these cops are radically traumatized they're not getting treatment for it mm -hmm. they're not getting resilience training what is being done is patchwork and surface only and they're not equipped to mm -hmm. handle what they see in the streets and so what it causes is performance failures it causes overuse of force it causes uh, excessive alcohol use drug use repression domestic violence and and the truth is that we open up our seminars with the a slideshow called the landscape of suffering that indicates that the research tells us that the moment you swear in and get your badge you've given away seven to ten years of your life because the average um, this is done with Caucasian males. The average Caucasian male officer dies seven to ten years earlier than their their age match counterpart in civilian population. Mm. And it comes from stress, illness, heart disease, cancer, suicide, mm. and drug addiction. So we're talking about a really traumatized population that will not acknowledge that they're traumatized. Yes. Yes. I could definitely say that absolutely. You know, especially um, because they're not um, emotionally mature as well, right? They don't have the uh, the knowledge of their trauma and all the things that they've um, pushed because that's what it is, right? And then when um, a situation occurs where they're now able to unleash a lot of this, they, they, they just do it, right, without having the awareness of what's occurring and just because there is no healing involved in 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 their life aspect and their you know sub society as you're saying um and that's why a lot of you know and i feel like a lot of the police violence is is due to that right it's just due to not having these spaces for them to have the awareness of what's truly going on within themselves that needs addressing in order for them to do their job at their best as they can um, versus lashing out kind of like they've become high school bullies, right? Lashing out on everyone else. They're patrolling the hallways and, you know, no one knows what goes on at home. No one talks about it. No one even asks about it. So the high school bully is just going to continue being the high school bully until someone comes in and shows otherwise right which is what what you're trying to um 
do and help them through. Um, so that's truly needed. And um, I hope it catches like wildfire throughout the country. Well, it's a very uphill battle. Um, and, and part of the reason it's mm. uphill is that, you know, what, what's missing in addition to like trauma resilience training is also uh, psychological training that allows people with a gun and a badge to mm. understand the, the, the behavior that they're seeing, right? A lot of the behavior they're seeing is truly disturbing and it is also representing a very legitimate threat to their safety and you know there's there's insult and there's injury right so when someone resists arrest and they're violent and there's there's so much evidence of that happening sometimes it's just people are scared people are traumatized people are at their very last um, sort of hope for anything and the idea of going to prison They'd rather die, so they'd rather fight than go to prison, right? So there's a lot of reasons why people will resist arrest, for instance. And police officers can get injured as they try and subdue someone and arrest them and place them in custody. But the insult comes from the mental aspect of treating people like they're monsters in their minds. But if they understood that the only reason why someone steals or shoot somebody or flees an accident that they caused is because they are they're suffering psychologically mm -hmm. they're suffering yes and if they yeah. understood that they could they could reduce the in, the insult even if they sustain mm -hmm. an injury in the process of trying to do right. the work of the law right, right? so right. learning how to um, have compassion for community mm -hmm. you serve because you understand what causes bad behavior, what causes lawlessness, mm -hmm. what causes violence, mm -hmm. would actually mm -hmm. go a long way to making more peaceful arrests and also not causing a toxic mind state of there are all these mm -hmm. bad people out there and I have to go get them. Right. That's a toxic right. mind state. And Absolutely. It's, it's not accurate. It, it's, it's, no. These are, these are beautiful children who have suffered some terrible experiences, mm -hmm. neglects, poverty, uh, systemic racism, you name it. And, and now their, their defense mechanisms are really based on distorted view of self, yeah. distorted view of opportunity, distorted view of others, and they're acting it out. And so yeah. um, if we understood that, we could find real, really deep compassion. You know, so Absolutely. that's what we're trying to do. I'm really proud of, of one of my mentees named Robert Johnson, who's just been elected a sheriff of Santa Clara County. And he is mm -hmm. just one of those guys who embodies the Bodhisattva warrior. You know, he's so, mm -hmm. so full of um, wisdom and patience and tolerance. And it's great because he's a, a, a really white dude and he's doing amazing work with all kinds of communities and showing the model of what it looks like. He's gone through our training. He's gone through yeah. the um, compassion training at uh, Stanford. Um, and he's just one of those people who is, is really walking the walk, really walking the mm -hmm. walk on the edge of, of being rejected by the people he's trying to change, but he's unwilling to give up in them. Mm -hmm. And so he leads with right. compassion, right. you know, he's really extraordinary. Absolutely.
Yes, because, you know, the resistance comes from the inner child of that person just truly just dying for that nourishment, right? But mm -hmm. they don't know how to help, have a healthy sense of accepting that and receiving that because it, they've never had that in their lives. So the other way is to resist. Um, and so I definitely can understand and, you know, being the example, the embodiment, I'm sure will definitely go a long way for him um, and having the patience and the compassion because eventually the heart will slowly, right, will open up. The inner child will just continue to crave what he is offering and eventually they come around. Right. And it's just having the patience as to when, because we just don't know how deep everyone's trauma is not allowing for them to receive what is being presented in such a loving space. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's remarkable. That is beautiful. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that because it is is so, so needed. I mean, we don't even have to go through stories. <laughs> we all know we're very aware of what goes on and um, yeah, I mean, we're all um, going through what what we know best, that survivor space, right? And that's and that's what happens a lot. We're just stuck in that space. And to thrive is um, sometimes not even um, a mental state that a, a survivor can even imagine or, or process that that could be, you know, because you you start to feel like the world is just hard and it's it's against you and you just have to always be that warrior and ready to have that fight or flight response ready to go just in case and it's um you know as we we have these people coming in just slowly showing up for everyone because that's what it is not having someone to show up for you and someone does it's scary at first and then eventually they'll come around so it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, wanted to ask you what other, um, because I, I definitely want to leave the good one for last. Um, and I also don't want to take up too much of your time. But um, is there any other uh, work that you're currently involved in um, that you wanted to share? Yeah, I, I'm actually, so as a therapist, that's my bread and butter. So I, I teach classes for UCLA mm -hmm. and I um, do a mindfulness book club on the weekends, but my bread and butter is psychotherapy. And so I'm very excited about this new Renaissance interest in psychedelic experience as a healing mm -hmm. process for um, depression, anxiety, mm -hmm. and uh, PTSD symptoms. And so I'm doing yes. uh, ketamine assisted psychotherapy um, for lots of different reasons. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons is that it's legal, whereas all the others are still mm -hmm. experimental phase two and right. phase three trials with the FDA. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also shorter. So uh, um, many of these um, medicines last four to 10 hours, whereas ketamine is only about an hour and a half right. to two hours. And so this is really exciting. Oh, okay. it's, it's actually, um, you know, when someone is sort of stuck, Part of what's stuck is their affect. So affect is a word we'll talk about in a little bit more at length, but affect okay. is another way of saying how we feel in the body and mm -hmm. how we express through body language and facial expressions and also includes kind of mood. 
And so when you're stuck in, in a certain kind of affect and nothing you do in therapy or even with exercise or antidepressants really works, you mm -hmm. kind of have this sense of hopelessness. And so the depression gets mm -hmm. worse. But when you have an experience of having that lifted, hope is restored and there actually is a lot more willingness to do the psychotherapy work that in the past didn't help all that much. So that's really exciting. I'm very, very mm -hmm. uh, hopeful to help people who have been uh, unhelped by SSRIs to treat depression and for people whose anxiety has been too powerful for them to make much progress. You know, even with mindfulness practice, sometimes what happens is there's just this sense of, I know what to do when I'm having anxiety, but I have to do it all the time, and the anxiety just keeps coming back. It's mm -hmm. relentless. And so there's kind of a fatigue of mm -hmm. trying to maintain presence mm -hmm. and create, create mental space for the anxiety to um, sort of not take hold of their attention and grab their, their consciousness and direct their behavior. Mm -hmm. But it's a constant vigil, and it can be exhausting. So something like this... Yeah is really powerful because it not only gives them a new experience, mm -hmm. but it also, one of the actions of ketamine is to increase what's called brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF, and that allows for enhanced neuroplasticity. So not only do you have mm -hmm. an effect of uh, neurons growing thicker and being more connected to each other with better connections, more um, more efficient connections, so there's more communication between different parts of the brain, but it's also uh, more uh, susceptible to making neural connections based on practices that you can do, such as mindfulness, such as reflection of thoughts and reframing, such as re-assigning um, meaning to body sensations. So. In the window after a ketamine session, you have about four days where anything you practice will be kind of laid down more durably. So you'll learn faster, basically, and you'll get better at it more quickly. Um, yeah, so it's really exciting prospect. That is exciting. Absolutely. Um, I've done DMT. I went all in. <laughs> um, and that was just, again, it's the same idea. I always tell people on this, it calls you and you're in that space. Definitely try it. If not, don't even dare go walk or dance around it. Don't. Um, but this this study is, is truly remarkable. You know, um, the study of neuroplasticity is is so big. I came across it, I think, um, from uh, Jill Bolte. I think she was uh, one of the books I read about 13 years ago where she had, um, I think it's My Stroke my stroke of Genius or something. I can't remember. My Stroke of book, Insight. But... Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Phenomenal book. Changed my life. Um, and so that is great that the ketamine is able to do that because yes like you're saying um what did you refer to it as uh, the aspect right the the what's uh the affect I, i'm sorry affect how, yeah the affect right how affect. it's just unable to move right the energy is unable to shift no matter what they do how they practice uh, you know from trying to move out of the depression or out of the anxiety state and so i i love that that that's what's happening it's it's important um, because we're all built differently, right? And we're all traumatized differently. And so 
the brain is going to take to those things in different ways for everyone. So some of us need the assistance um, because the hopelessness is real, right? And you can really just fall into that deep, dark hole, whether you're in depression or anxiety. Um, and so to have a hopeful space that, you know, that that's coming across is not the first time I've heard of this. Um, you know, psilocybin is a big one as well. And so to have all these, these psychoactive, um, psychedelics being used in such a positive space, I feel like it's just making that comeback, like a, a kind of like how LSD was being used, right? And now we have the psilocybin, the ketamine, um, in this aspect to kind of help the brain especially now more so than ever um it's not it's it's not an easy task for most people to be able to just go to therapy and it'll just go away and it'll just talk it out of yourself right that's just not gonna help sometimes right and um and for people who have you know are very self-aware where they've tried everything under the sun um and to have this be able to be a thing and have the brain be malleable for those that time frame is a good time frame about almost a week four or five days to start reprogramming is truly remarkable so that's that's great news mm-hmm. yeah it's exciting very exciting. how have the studies come through like what are the um, like um you know, some of the people that have gone through this study, how have they, you know, uh, changed? Um, in yeah, their and life? I think what you really, you know, this is this is going to be um, really about, you know, measuring instruments that we use as standardized tools to assess depression. So we see people's depression symptoms really decrease significantly when you combine therapy with mm. uh, the ketamine treatment. Ketamine by itself will decreased depression symptoms by around on average 60%, but it only lasts for about a week and then it kind of comes back. So mm-hmm. it's really about yeah. this very uh, relational aspect and this very skills mm-hmm. building aspect of that window of time where mm-hmm. you're working with your therapist to develop the um, mindfulness skills, the self-reflection skills, the reframing skills, and the distress tolerance skills. All those things can become much more able to stick, as it were. Yes. Um, yeah. So that's really the combination. So we see people being able to manage, you know, feeling better, mm-hmm. feeling helpful, having more mental flexibility and more agility with their minds and more emotional range. Amazing. That is amazing. It's so exciting. I love yeah, that. It is. That is, it's, wow. Yeah. I, 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 will, I would love to know more. Um, I will reach out and... I would love to read more if you have anything that you can share with me because um, that is that is truly remarkable um, and important to, to be had. Um, so on to the last topic of the evening, which is this theory of emotion um, that you brought to my attention. Really wanted to dive into it. Um, it's truly remarkable. Um, I really didn't... It is a theory, yes, but it, it just makes sense. When you know, when you brought it to my attention, I started doing research. Um, and I, I do have a question after we go through it uh, and get your an, an idea of what's 
going on. But um, if you don't mind explaining to the listener uh, the theory of emotion and um, what is your take or, or work on it for, for thus far for you? Sure. Well, in, in a nutshell, you know, emotion has been something that we've been interested in since the Greeks. And the problem with emotion is that, um, well, really, it's twofold. One is that you know the body um, is a mammal body, and so it responds to both external and internal environmental signals for action. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned earlier, fight or flight, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. All these mm-hmm. are different ways that the body can go into action or defense. And because we are animals, right? And then we have this weird thing called the mind. And the problem with the mind is that the mind is something that science can't explain. The brain science does not explain the mind. Um, It explains features of mind functioning, but the mind itself, what consciousness Mm -hmm. is, science has no good theory about it at all. And so the reason why we have the, the age of the brain is because Scientists cannot actually inspect your mind whatsoever. All they can do is ask you questions or they can give you certain kind of perturbations, a, a stimulus with a, an electrode or uh, a, a drug, an anesthetic mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And then they can look at what we call neural correlates of consciousness, blood flow and electricity. But none of that tells me what's actually going on in your mind. Mm-hmm. All right, so I could ask you to close your eyes, imagine the face of someone you love, and then watch your countenance change. But you could be looking at apple pie for all I know, and you could just mm-hmm. tell me you're looking at your daughter or something, right? So I, there's mm-hmm. no way to know if you're lying or not. And the reason why mm-hmm. is because we don't have a machine that can actually go in and check out what your mind is doing. We can only mm-hmm. see that your visual cortex lit up, your prefrontal cortex lit up, your limbic system calmed down. That's all we can say. But that tells us nothing mm-hmm. about what the experience is like or what you mm-hmm. actually are seeing and hearing and experiencing in your mind. Your mind is the biggest mystery there is in all of creation. So mm-hmm. emotions become a problem because we can observe people with facial expressions and body language and actions. And for a long time, we just assumed that, that those were emotions. And we tried to do research and see in between individuals, between cultures and nations. And the research had always gone on this sort of observational set of inferences. Mm -hmm. But there are some really key people and and originally pioneering were female researchers. Of course, back then in the 60s, researchers who were female didn't get much respect. So we were actually much earlier were on to better evidence, but it was kind of buried by the guys in white coats. But there's a woman named mm-hmm. Lisa Feldman Barrett at Northeastern University who uh, is, is brilliant. She was at Harvard for a long time. Now she's at Northeastern. And she and her lab have replicated every published study on emotion that has ever been published in mm-hmm. addition to original research. And what she found was that the assumptions that a lot of original emotional research were based on were, were, were not valid. And mm-hmm. so what we've been told over the decades and maybe thousands of years is that um, emotions are in your body. They're, they're mm-hmm. sort of organic in your body. But if we look at what an emotion is, we have all these words to describe emotions. So I like to always use the afflictive emotions of anger 
as an example, so anger is an emotion, um, but so is frustration, irritation, um, indignation, impatience, rage, outrage. Those are all related to each other. But the reason why they exist is not because they exist in different parts of your body or they all have, all have the same pattern in your body. They don't have any pattern in your body as that's universal. What's true is that each one of those words is a culturally accepted idea about certain kinds of situations that happen in life. And so if you're, if you're angry, it's pretty generic. If you're waiting in traffic because the red light keeps blinking and it's obviously broken, now you're frustrated because you want to do something that you're being prevented from doing. If someone doubts that you actually did all the research that you used in your presentation at that meeting, they're doubting your integrity, that's called indignation, right? Someone's messing with your dignity, right? So each one of these emotion words is actually a concept and the concept is about describing what it's like to be in that particular situation. And it turns out that not only are you not born with those words, because as a baby, there are no words. Mm -hmm. You're not born with any mm -hmm. of emotions. Right. But those emotions, those emotion concepts vary from epic to epic in the same culture. So look at 100 years ago. Look at what emotions were talked about. 100 years ago in this country or go to any country and look how it changes over 50 years, 100 years. But in between cultures, there are words for experiences that we don't have any words in the English language for or in the Spanish language for or in Eskimo, right? The various Eskimo languages. So emotions are culturally created and they're learned ideas about how to describe what it's like to be in a situation. That's not the same thing as affect. Affect or feelings, there's, they're one and the same. We in the English language conflate emotions and feelings, but they're not the same. They can occur at the mm -hmm. same time, mm -hmm. but they're not the same. So feelings you are born with. Babies have feelings. What are feelings? Feelings are everything from the, the sensation of a blanket around my body or my diaper in my body that's warm or not. It's wet maybe. Um, being hungry, being full being calm, being agitated, being alert, being sleepy. Um, all these are states of consciousness and states of the body that are with you 24-7. Your brain is tracking them all the time to figure out what they mean. So if I have an increased heart rate and increased uh, sensation in my solar plexus, those are generic sensations. Those are not emotions. Right. Right? They're generic sensations yeah. of, of physiology. Mm -hmm. In one context... I just saw an attractive person in my class who flirted with me and gave me a wink. Mm -hmm. In a different context, I'm in the waiting room of um, a hospital to find out some lab results. In a third context, I look at the clock and I'm racing against time to finish a proctored license exam. Yeah. Same body sensations, heart rate mm -hmm. increase, uh, butterflies in my solar plexus. The emotions mm -hmm. in the first case are excitement, and maybe mm -hmm. a little embarrassment. Those are mm -hmm. the emotions, maybe. Maybe lust. The mm -hmm. second situation is a situation where um, maybe the emotions are um, worry and fear. Mm -hmm. 
about the lab results. The yeah. third situation, it might be, um, it could be self-doubt. It could mm -hmm. be um, also worried that I won't finish in time. Or I could flip it around and say, you know what? I have all the energy I need right now to finish this test. Determination is the emotion. Confidence is the emotion, right? Same body sensations, three different stories, three different mm -hmm. sets of emotions. The emotion is in the story. It's not in your body. Mm -hmm. Body sensations are generic functionality of physiology. Now, where it gets tricky is that we associate because our minds, as I said earlier in the meditation, we experience our, our bodies in our, in our minds. We don't experience the body directly. Even with a deep body scan, you're still getting granular, but you're getting... Right. The body information, the way that the, the brain works with the mind is that the right. brain constructs the experience of the body. Right. It's a construction. It's a, this whole thing is called the construction theory of experience mm -hmm. and in particular mm -hmm. the construction theory of emotion. So yeah. emotions are constructed on the spot as your mind uses the past to try and understand mm -hmm. what is the situation most like for my past and it uses my past to say, oh, this is a situation where someone is not returning a text message. Why not? And right. then I have all these ideas about what that is. And so maybe it's worry is the emotion. Maybe it's anger. It's the emotion. But it's based on how I think. Mm -hmm. And now maybe it will create increased heart rate, muscle tension, a tight stomach. And maybe I have a history of people ghosting me in mm -hmm. dating situations. So right. now I think that oh, my stomach is tight, that means I'm right. That means that they are ghosting me. But that might mm. not be true at all. It mm. might not be true in the light, in the slightest. It's right. just that these sensations have been paired with these meanings and, and storytellings that I do. And so um, they have a sort of a feedback loop that reinforces my belief in my own thoughts. But you know, I could be right. really wrong about it. So right. what I do is I help people understand using mindfulness how to un untangle thinking from feeling, thinking from mm -hmm. affect. And when they can do that, they start to realize that, oh, the emotions really matter in the way that I tell the story. What language do I use to tell the story? Because if I, I can tell a story about some very objective facts. Yeah. This person broke up with me. Well, I can say it's because I'm a loser and no one wants to stay with me. And right. then the emotions are shame and grief and sadness and loneliness or i can yeah. say man this happened again i don't know what's going on i wonder what my role is in this i'm going to get support around this because i want a loving relationship now the emotions are sadness maybe some confusion some acceptance is an emotion and also hope because i'm going to i'm going to reach out and get some support right so how i tell the story determines the emotions and what mm -hmm. you feel in your body could be resulting from Good sleep or poor sleep, low blood sugar mm -hmm. or adequate blood sugar. Having mm -hmm. worked out a lot yesterday, maybe I'm overtraining and I'm exa exhausted. Right. Maybe I have low back pain. All those things mm -hmm. contribute to how my body feels when I'm having these thoughts. And so in psychology, we're now doing a lot of prescription of exercise, yoga, mindfulness, um, massage, getting hugs whenever you can get hugs, good sleep. All those things affect your affect and your feeling. Which right. is not a which is not emotion. It's mm -hmm. the physiological response to inner and outer environmental stimuli. Right. 
and so when I have guys who say, you know, I sit there in couples therapy, and the therapist looks at me and says, you know, when Sheila says that about you, how do you feel? And the guy's like, I don't know. I don't feel anything. <laughs> and I say, okay, well, let's take that again. Close your eyes. What do you feel in your chest right now? It feels like my heart's beating fast. Okay, you feel that. What do you feel mm -hmm. in your stomach? It feels like nothing. Okay, your stomach's relaxed. Okay, great. How about your fingers? My palms are sweating. Okay, you feel that. Now I want you to think about the story. When Sheila said that you never mm -hmm. remember your anniversary, what was the first thought that came to your mind? Oh, I could do nothing right. Okay, what's the emotion there? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Okay, maybe guilt. Is she, is she right? Yeah, mm -hmm. it's true. Mm -hmm. I never do. Okay, so guilt could be one emotion. And uh, how about another one? Well, I feel resist. I, mean, I feel resentful, right? Mm -hmm. So there. So guilt and resentment are the emotions based on the thoughts he noticed in his mind. All of a sudden, now he's got a full read on his system, where mm -hmm. before he had no idea where to look. Right. I don't know what my emotions right. are, and right. I don't like the way my body feels, right? Right. So right. when when we learn how to look and know where to look and how to disentangle thoughts, stories, and emotions from body sensations and feelings, we get clarity. And then we know how to work and go forward with mm -hmm. actually um, deeper self-knowledge. Yeah. You know? And when someone does like a, a, a loving kindness practice, for instance, a lot of people mm -hmm. will say to me, I don't feel anything. I just feel flat. It feels like empty. I'm like, but that's okay. What's, the What's wrong with that? Well, I'm supposed to feel it. Not necessarily at all. No. Right. The mm -hmm. intention and the emotions are in the words. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you, right. may you love mm -hmm. yourself. Be kind to yourself. May you be at peace. That's where the emotions are. And if you say it with clarity and truthfulness, mm -hmm. whether you feel anything in your body doesn't matter. Some right. days you will, some days you won't. Mm -hmm. It's, it's mm -hmm. kind of irrelevant. It is. Be it present is. to what's in your body, but have intentionality with the words. Are you sincere? That's all that matters. And all of a sudden, like, oh, my meditation's not broken, you know? Right, <laughs> right, because all the stories get in the way. Mm -hmm. And all the, right, because even, like, talked about the not getting into the meditation space, right, because there's so many stigmas. So you start self-judging, and I'm not doing this right, and do, do, do. so now you're you're not doing it. You're not going to do it. it. You've allowed all these other aspects come in. Um, but um, thank you for for just going through that. Truly, that is truly important um, because the clarity part is that. that That is so important, that clarity, because all the ways that we've been programmed to emotionalize frustration, fear, on and on and on, and then the stories, and then the, the layering that, that the mind starts to distort into what is really an emotion versus what is really happening right now in the body versus the cake that you just built. And now <laughs> there's no sensation that you're able to tune into, right? Because the body is you're tuning for it, per se, right? To be able to sit in that space. And even, and I love your example about couples therapy because there's so much pressure in that space. When you're, so what do you feel? And you're like, uh, so of course, I don't I don't know. Like I, I'm being put on the spot. Am I supposed to feel happy, sad? Do I say 
sad? Is that the right thing? Will will she get yelled at? Will she get mad at me? Like you don't know where to go there versus how you just beautifully said, where, where close your eyes. Where where's your heart? Where is your stomach? Where are your hands? What what's going on there? And once you're able to tune in, and it's a form of grounding yourself to now be able to verbalize and feel exactly what is happening at that present moment versus the 10 years of my marriage and all the things that I've done wrong and all the, and again, the cake, the layering, right? Versus what's the present now. So um, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Um, and one of my questions was going to be the the feeling versus the emotion. What is that? Like where? And thank you for clarifying. Um, I did want to ask, where does intuition play in this space? Intuition is really the result of um, the fact that the mind has, um, it's, since it's not a physical thing, mm. it doesn't have a shape. So sometimes we use these metaphors like, you know, the uh, going deeper into the mind. There's no depth. There's no surface. It's all, it's, it's a right. whole bizarre strange reality so so intuition is the result of uh, functioning of the mind that is below the level of consciousness mm. where you, you don't see all the math being done all the figuring all the assessment analysis it's all happening out of the conscious awareness and then it pushes up some signal some clues some aha moment or some gut instinct, sometimes they call it a gut mm -hmm. instinct, because sometimes mm -hmm. it's the body that has got to get your attention because mm -hmm. um, it's not, for whatever reason, we don't know why, uh, it won't appear as right. um, an aha moment of thinking. Um, mm. But, you know, right. it, intuition is, is very dicey because it's based on past experience. And so we can have a lot of bad experiences mm. where... People have been untrustworthy. And so, again, I get ghosted on this text message. Mm. And because of my past, my gut instinct tells me this guy's not good. But in fact, mm. he had a power outage because of the rain and his phone didn't mm. charge and he didn't get to text me back. So my gut instinct was wrong. So we mm. have to be very – we have to get, again, back to that earlier conversation. Yes. We have to know ourselves. We have to know the, mm -hmm. the parts of ourselves that we don't see and bring them into the light. We have to heal parts of ourselves so that our intuitions yes. are more and more reliable because sometimes they're Absolutely. not reliable, you know? Right. Cause it's we also can... a muscle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so it's, it's a powerful and natural function of the mind, um, but also needs work just like anything else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause that's uh, important aspect. Like, and I love how you said it kicks into the body where you get the gut feeling, right? But sometimes that could be that fight or flight feeling in the stomach and not knowing how to distinct mm -hmm. what, you know, being able, this was the other one, being able to feel the energetic field and the vibrations that are coming through and feeling that versus the past, the layering. And I'm going to just call it that this layering that you're doing and um, thinking that that's what's truly going on, right? I feel that 
I, because of my past, I've been ghosted before. So I feel that that's going to be the thing versus being knowing yourself, being in tune with the energetic resonance that is your own frequency, the frequency of outside of yourself and feeling and being that uh, having that sensitivity to what's truly going on and removing yourself from uh, removing your yourself in the way like the ego wanting a, a certain uh, answer per se, right? Just kind of, you know, because sometimes the ego loves to play tricks. <laughs> um, and so it's just, again, like coming back full circle, just getting to know yourself so that way you can trust the vessel that you're in because it is the great indicator as you just demonstrated between the feeling what's going on presently versus the layering that's going on up here from all these experiences, stories, and, you know, the way we've been programmed to think emotion, right? Because another thing that came through when I was doing my research was watching TV, movies. I say it's a, a, a romantic comedy. These triggers that happen in the movie that trigger the emotion, what's really happening is your heart sad for the because the couple broke up. If you check with your heart, it's pretty calm. But you're crying because the mind was tricked into believing that that's actually factual. Mm-hmm. So that's what kind of now I now watch TV differently because of this whole theory, because that's exactly what's going on. I mean, I already don't watch TV, but um, I was very intrigued with that. It just kind of came through and I thought, yes, that's why they make these stories so great because they already know what triggers these emotions for you to binge watch seasons on end for no reason, um, because now you're fully invested emotionally, right? Mm-hmm. If you were to just do that experiment. If you watch the next movie of someone dying or a heart, you know, a couple breaking up, close your eyes and check in with your heart. And you're going to see, or, or your stomach or your palms, like all these beautiful other exercises, the body's just chilling and your mind is overreactive with the layering. So that's what kind of came through um, when you first told me about this. And um, I was excited to talk about it and bring it up for the listener to dive a little deeper, to self-explore further, right? Like you said, just to go in deeper um, versus what you've been programmed, conditioned to think that this is the reaction, you know, when someone ghosts you or when someone, you know, cuts you um, while you're driving, right? What? How can you be fully present? Because that's what mindfulness is, that present moment. How can you be fully present with your body and not allow the, the, the stories just take you away and fill you with anxiety and fill you with depression and fill you with things that aren't holding you here now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I, I am ever so grateful for you to take so much time on this. And, you know, um, it, 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 my 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 like inner child uh, through this entire conversation was just filled with joy and and giddiness because um i rarely get to have these insightful deep conversations in mindfulness right i get to hear everyone's 
story, but it's not relative to my field, which is uh, mindfulness. So um, having you on was truly a gift um, and a treat to really get to explore and play and um, kind of expand consciousness together as we talk about these topics and having the listener be a participant as well. And I hope that everyone listening does have uh, take an opportunity to dive a little more into your self-exploration because it is a tool. Just play with it, see what works and kind of be the child of, of the vessel and what does work for you, what doesn't, what triggers you, what doesn't, what, you know, all these beautiful uh, things. Um, and so, uh, Brian, if um, I'm going to uh, include, you know, your website on here as well for anyone that may be interested in asking you questions, if that's all right with you. Sure. Um, and I wanted to ask you if there's anything else before I close this beautiful conversation out uh, that you wanted to share with the audience today yeah i think um the only thing i would add you know we could we could go on for days and days and never exhaust this topic mm. but i think i think there is um something to know and that is that everything that your body does and everything that your mind does whether you it's pleasant or unpleasant is all um driven by the fundamental nature of wanting to be safe and to be connected and to love and be loved. That's, that's what everything arises from and returns to. And so um, if we could learn about that, it would change how we practice and change how we show up in the world. So yeah, yes. I would say that's, that's an important message that I like to share with you. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much again for sharing your, your light, your energy, your wisdom. I'm ever so grateful. And uh, everyone listening, thank you so much for tuning in. And I love you all so much. Remember that the breath is the secret. I always say, tuning into yourself and always try to lead with love. And until next time, thank you. <laughs>